the Lord about this, that this thing, this thorn, this challenge that I carried would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God, I want to thank you that you don't need perfect people. You don't need us to have everything together. But God, in our weakness, you are strong. In our weakness, we rely on you. And the power of God is made perfect there. And we thank you, God, that you are at work in weak children so that your glory is made real, revealed to the world. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you that we are able to engage together as your people, to love one another, to minister to one another, to enjoy the presence of your Spirit. And that you speak to us as well, God, both prophetically and through your Scriptures. We bless you, God. Amen. Amen. Good morning and welcome, friends. If you haven't met me before, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Connect, and it's a real pleasure and privilege to be with you this morning. If you're joining us for the first time or you've missed the last couple of weeks, we're in a series which we've called Engage, and this series is about understanding the heart of God for those who are outside the kingdom, for those who are not yet Christians, for those who have yet to discover the love that the Father has for them. And it's been, we've been looking at how God has called us to be involved in that and to be partnering with Him in His quest and His call and His purpose in coming to bring those who are lost back into the kingdom, who are in the kingdom of darkness, to bring them into the kingdom of light. That's what we've been doing in the, in the series called Engage. And this morning, I'm going to wrap that up with a message that I've called The Guiding Hand of God in Evangelism. And we're going to look at the story of, of uh, Philip in Acts chapter 8 as he engages with the Ethiopian eunuch. And there's a couple of things we're going to see there. But behind all of it is this idea that God is at work, where he calls us to join him in evangelism. He is already at work going ahead and before us. So I want to set the scene for you in case you're not super familiar with the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Philip is a guy that we meet for the first time in Acts chapter 6, in the book that Luke is writing, and uh, he's elected as a deacon in the church. There was a challenge the church was going through. There were some Greek widows that weren't getting provision uh, to enable them to live, and so they have this problem, and the apostles elect some deacons. Philip is one of those guys. He's described as a man full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And he's probably a Greek guy, and he comes, he's brought into the church to help deal with the, the, the challenge and the problem that's happening at the time. And he operates in that capacity for some period of time. We don't know exactly how long. And uh, sometime after that, Stephen gets arrested. Stephen is also a guy who, who really loves God, and he's beginning to, to share his, his story of faith and what God has done. And he actually begins to preach to the Jews that are around him. And at one point in his message, he calls him out and he says, you have crucified Jesus the Messiah. 
And of course, they don't take very kindly to that at all. And, uh, and so they begin to stone him and, and to put him to death. And that moment marks the moment when persecution begins to break out against the early church. Up until this point, it's been a small kind of movement with Jesus and his disciples and then Pentecost. And, and people are getting saved, but it's a new thing and no one really knows what's going on. And at this moment where Stephen is executed, the, there's kind of organized resistance against the young Christian church. And so in Acts chapter 8, at the very beginning, we see the believers spread. And they all were in Jerusalem. They begin to move out of Jerusalem and flee because the persecution is real. And so just the apostles stay behind in Jerusalem and everyone else leaves. And, and so Acts chapter 8 follows the story of Philip, one of the guys who then left Jerusalem and what happened as he went out. And so he goes through to a city called Samaria. We're going to see exactly where that is in a little moment time, but um, he begins to minister in Samaria, and he goes there, he's encountered the risen Jesus, he's recognized this gospel, and he's understood that Jesus is alive, that he's not dead, that he really is the Messiah, he begins to share that with the people of Samaria, because he can't contain it inside of him, it's so wonderful, it's such great news, so he begins to share it with the people of Samaria, and not only does he share it with them, but God begins to work through him in touching the lives of the people that are there, so people are being delivered from demonic and evil spirits, people are getting healed, they getting set free from illness and infirmity that they've carried for years, and people are beginning to notice what's going on. So much so that the apostles in Jerusalem begin to hear about the ministry that Philip is coordinating in Samaria, and so they send two of the apostles down to just, you know, check out that it's legit and make sure what's going on. And so two of the apostles arrive and they encounter a guy called Simon. You may remember the story of Simon. Simon was a magic practitioner in the city. He had the ability to do things of great power, and so people respected him. And now he began to see what was happening through Philip. It intrigued him. And then the apostles came. They began to pray for people. And as they prayed for them, the Holy Spirit fell on them in a way that was recognizable to Simon in what Philip was doing. And so he says to the apostles, listen, can I buy the Spirit? And they're like, that's not really how it works. And uh, he has a bit of a moment of realizing, well, he might just be following for the signs and the wonders, but doesn't really love Jesus yet. And so the apostles kind of deal with Simon. The Holy Spirit falls on the people who are getting saved in Samaria. And the apostles feel like their job is done. They're happy to continue to entrust the ministry to the people that are there. They begin to head back to Jerusalem. There's a really interesting little note as they do that. I just found it really interesting as I was reading this, is they went straight from Jerusalem to Samaria. On the way back, they stop off at all the little cities on the way, and they begin to preach because they've noticed and they've seen something that for the first time, the good news about Jesus and who he is as the risen Messiah is being shared with the Gentiles, and God is endorsing it by pouring his Spirit onto those people. And so they go back, and they begin to participate in the same ministry. That's kind of the background for what's happened behind our text. So all of that has just happened. The apostles have just left Samaria. They're on their way back, and Luke goes back, the author of Acts. He jumps back to Philip, and we pick up the text from verse 26 in Acts chapter 8. And it says this, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so all Philip went, and he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. Now this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way, he was sitting in his chariot and reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near him. All right, there are three things that I want to pick up for us just from this first section of Scripture. We're going to continue to read the rest of the story and, uh, and observe some things as we go along. First thing I want us to note, it happens twice in this 
um, brief section of Scripture in these four verses, there's direct revelation and guidance that comes from God to Philip. Do you notice that? It starts with the angel, verse 26. Now, the angel of the Lord said to Philip, go. And then it finishes with the Spirit telling Philip, verse 29, go to that chariot and stay near it. I, I think that's wonderful. I think it's absolutely fantastic that God wants to speak to his people in this way. There's so many passages in the book of Acts where this happens. Right? I, it, it happens so frequently. I really battle, I re- genuinely battle and don't understand where people get to the place where they say, I don't believe God speaks to his people this way anymore. I find that very difficult to understand. Let me give you some examples. Remember in Acts 13, the churches, they're worshiping and they're fasting, and it says, and the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart from me Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. That's straight out of Acts 13. Remember Acts chapter 10, go back three chapters. We've got Peter and Cornelius. And Cornelius is praying. He's a Gentile guy. He's not a Jewish guy. And he's praying and he's looking to find God. And he has this angel appears to him in a vision. Says, listen, Cornelius, I want you to send some men. I want you to send them to a place called Joppa. There's a guy called Simon Peter there. He's staying at a place. Simon the Tanner's house. Go fetch him and bring him here. That's a very specific instruction. In the same chapter, Peter also gets an instruction because God knows that Peter's going to resist this weird knock on his door to try and tell him something he doesn't want to hear. Right? You know how we do that sometimes. Right? So he also gets a vision. And in his vision, the Lord tells him, no, you need to go with the people that are coming with him. Acts chapter 10. What about Acts 16? You might remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul's on one of his missionary journeys. And he starts off and he says, well, the Spirit of Jesus prevented us from going into this place called Bithynia. So it's like, okay, well, we'll have to do something else. Then he's sleeping that night. He has a dream. In his dream, there's a Macedonian man, and he's calling him over and says, come to us. And so Paul wakes up from the dream and says this in, in Acts chapter 16. says, we concluded that God had called us to go and preach the gospel to them also. Paul received direct revelation. See, the direct interaction and guidance by the Holy Spirit is a really prominent feature and recurring practice in the book of Acts and really throughout Scripture. I don't know if you've noticed that, if you've taken the time to see that. One of my favorite characters is David. And David would often go along and he'd have to engage in battle for the land that God had given him. And so he would, he would get to the point and the enemies camped a few miles down the road and David would say, Lord, do I go up? Do I take the battle to them? And the Lord would say, yes, Dave, you can go. And off you would go. Or he'd say, Lord, do I go up? He says, you know what, Dave, actually what I want you to do this time, split your forces, half you go this way, half you go the other way, then bang on your shields and they're all going to run away. He would ask God questions and God would answer him. That was normative in his relationship with God and it's normative in the Scriptures. So we need, a, we need a desire after and seek the direct revelation of God. We genuinely do. But I also want to say, I think we need to find a balance between two extremes. So we just need to temper that just a little bit. We need to be careful that we don't fall into a thing that I've described as hyper-spiritualism. That's not a theological word. It's not a technical term. It's Brad's term. Hyper-spiritualism is where I don't do anything unless I believe I've got a very specific and particular word from the Lord about it. See, the problem with that is it tends to diminish the importance of Scripture Because Scripture gives us a lot of instruction about what we can and should be doing. And it also also tends to decrease accountability in our lives. I don't know if you've ever had a moment where there's a friend of yours who said to you, you know, I really feel like the Lord has told me to do this. And you look at them and you're like, 
that's going to be a real bad idea. I can see many reasons why that is not going to go well. Look, sometimes the Lord tells us to do any, anything, all kinds of strange and wonderful things, and when God is behind it, it's wonderful. But when it's very difficult to argue with someone who says, I feel like the Lord has told me. You're like, okay, well, I'm not the Lord, so I guess you should probably listen to him then. I think the challenge with that is, and you notice how we often phrase that. I like to say, I feel like the Lord has told me. It's sometimes very difficult for us to distinguish between what we actually feel and what the Lord has actually told us. And we just need to make sure that we carry that balance and make sure we try our very best to discern between those two things as best as possible. Because on the other hand of the spectrum is this idea of, again, not a real term, hyper-conservatism, right? This is the idea that I only do what I see the Scripture says, and I don't really believe that God would speak to me directly anymore. You see, this seems a lot safer, you know, because you don't get caught up in all kinds of weird and wonderful things that you see strange people doing on TV or in hyper-charismatic churches if you've ever been there. No, no one feels like they have to do handstands on stage because the Lord told them to. It seems like a safer space. But man, the cost is high. The cost is so high because half of the stories in the Scriptures are no longer helpful to you. They're no longer applicable to you because when David went along and he was doing what God asked him to, he would ask God a question and God would answer him. If we can't do that, then that's not a very helpful story for me. I don't know how I'm supposed to relate to that. Right? What about the stuff that the Scripture doesn't tell us? Who, who should you really be marrying? What business practice should you be engaging in? Who should you be partnering with in business? Who, who should you be speaking to while you're at the train station? See, those things just aren't in Scripture. So then do I just have no direction for that? So we've got we've to love and cherish both. We've got to love the Bible. We've got to like, be, be soaked in the Scriptures. And we're going to see why even more a little bit later. But that's super fundamental, and we've got to have that. But we've also got to trust, and we've got to look for the directional leading of God, the direct revelation of God. It comes and drops something on us, just shows us something. I'm not going to say much more about this, but I want, to, I want to leave you two questions to ponder around this idea. The first one is this. It says in Acts uh, 8.26, the angel of the Lord said to Philip, do you, know, do you ever think how Philip knew that was an angel? Angels in the Scriptures appear in different ways. Remember the shepherds when Jesus is born? There's a heavenly choir in the sky, right? And it's glorious, and there are trumpets, and it's, there's a big hoo-ha. It's kind of clear, unless you know how to levitate with a group of friends, that's a group of angels. What about Abraham, though? Abraham meets with an angel of the Lord who gives him the promise that Jesus is going to come. And it's only after the guy has left that he realizes, man, this guy was an angel. I had no idea. We had conversation. We had tea. We made some food. We had a long chat. At no point did I realize he was an angel until he left. The writer to the Hebrews says, be careful to show hospitality to everyone because some people have entertained angels without knowing it. I, I genuinely wonder, how did Philip know an angel had told him? This text, the text doesn't tell us. All right, but something to ponder. What, maybe there was something in his spirit that just resonated. God is behind this thing. I don't know. Second question, similar vein. Verse 29, the spirit told Philip, how do you picture that happening? 
Was there a voice that came from heaven? This is my son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. This is a chariot. Go stand next to it. I mean, maybe that happened. It has happened before, like when God spoke to Jesus, but not all the time. Daniel got writing on a wall. Do you think there was some writing in the sand on the ground? Do you think there was an idea that just suddenly popped into his head? I'm not sure. But Philip knew the Spirit was speaking. Okay, I'll leave those two with you. Let's move on. Next idea in the slide that I think in this text that's important is that Philip responds with immediate obedience. Do you notice that? Angel says, listen, go south to the road, the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Next verse, so he started out. Off he went. What you might not know is that it's, that's actually quite remarkable because what the angel asked him to do was no easy task. Right? Here's a map. This map is kind of helpful in understanding what he'd been asked to do. Philip is at the point of the arrow in the middle of the map. Right? You see the Dead Sea, you see Jerusalem there, and, and there's a little arrow that arcs up. At the top of that arrow, that's where Philip is, and the black line that follows the mountain range down, that's the road he had to go on. That's the south road. And then the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza is a kind of dotted line that goes across. That's an 80K walk. How many of you have done an 80-kilometer hike? It's a long hike. It took us about five days to do the Fisher River Canyon. All right. I wonder how long. It was, it's probably two to three days at least of walking, depending on how fit you are. How many of us would take an 80K walk because we believed God had told us something? Just a thought. There's a guy called Stuart Lee. Some of you may know Stuart. I've heard of him. He's one of the guys from the UK that helped us uh, run the Living Free course here at uh, Connect. It's a really wonderful course and a wonderful guy. And uh, he says this. He says this about obedience, and I love this. He says, when God asks for obedience, we typically tend to want a confirmation, an explanation, and if we get those things, then maybe we'll do what God has asked us to do. What God desires in obedience is instant is instantaneous obedience. It's heartfelt obedience. And then if you're lucky, you'll get an explanation. Okay? We tend to want it the other way around. I want you, somehow Philip knew God was speaking to him, but I want you to notice he didn't get an explanation. The angel just said to him, listen, Philip, take an 80K walk. Go walk down to the crossroads. It's going to be great. Didn't even get told it's going to be great. Just go walk. He doesn't know what's going to happen. But obedience doesn't require that. I mean, this is most obviously recognizable in a military context. And you've got a collection of men. You're all hunkered down in the trenches. There's enemy gunfire overhead. And your commanding officer says to you, listen, guys, at my signal, we're going to charge over the top. We're going to assault the position ahead of us. And Private Bob's like, but why? That doesn't seem like a cool idea. I'm not on board for that. Sorry, Private Bob, you don't get to ask why. Your job is to do. That's what obedience is about. Obedience is about following. It needs to be immediate. It needs to be genuine. Imagine Philip had decided to wait and to test out his word. I'm not saying we shouldn't test what we believe God is saying. I think that's important. But just imagine he'd taken a day to pray about it. Do you think he would have met the eunuch? Because that guy's going on a different journey. We should also seek to be instant and heartfelt in our obedience to God. 
We need to make sure that we're able to hear God's voice. Jesus says, my sheep will know my voice. We need to be able to recognize God's voice. And that's not, this is not a message about hearing God's voice, but that has got to be an important part of our lives if we're going to have obedience that in, that's instantaneous and heartfelt. I'll share a story with you. I've got a friend of mine. Her name is Megan. We've been friends for a long time. She was working in Fishhook one day. She's about my age. And... Um, she decided to take lunch. She went for a walk down the catwalk in Fishhook. And uh, while she was there, she met a guy who was about 70 years old or so. And because she's a very friendly person, they began to chat and hang out. And um, she came away from this conversation feeling like he was qu- like quite sad, like he didn't have a lot to live for. Like, yeah, he, he just didn't know what the meaning of life was. And a couple of days later... She was, uh, she was in Fishhook again, and she, just, she felt the Spirit say to her, you need to go to the second-hand bookshop, you need to buy a Bible, and then you need to go to this coffee shop. Dave is going to be there, you need to give it to him. So she decided to do it, and she went off to the second-hand bookshop, but there wasn't a Bible. So she said, well, the next best thing is there's, this, there's a book about finding Jesus. I think it was probably the case for Christ, something similar to that. She, just, she found this, and um, she bought it. She went off to the particular coffee shop, and lo and behold, Dave was there. So she gave him the Bible, and they chatted for, not the Bible, the book, and they chatted for a little bit. And out of that interaction, he decided to head off to King of Kings in Sun Valley. And when he was at King of Kings in Sun Valley, he met Jesus. And for the last 10 years of his life, he's followed Jesus, and there's been a purpose to his life. Because someone was obedient when they felt they heard God say something, even though it was strange and unusual. Final, final point on, the, on obedience. And we're just going to flash forward here to what happens at the end. Right? But Philip followed God with obedience, and it led to some really wonderful fruits. Right? Firstly, he went to Samaria, and Jesus had told him to make disciples of all nations, and so he began to share the gospel in Samaria, and the Gentiles began to find Christ. And then he listened to the angel, and off he goes down the road towards the deserts, and he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch, And it's the first time an Ethiopian finds Christ. And he makes his way back to Ethiopia. We don't know what happens. But it's distinctly probable that the result of Philip's obedience is that two new demographics, two new people groups, receive the gospel of Jesus. Because one man was obedient. All right, let's look at the third part of the first section. Then we'll move on a little bit quicker, I promise. All right, so the third section, the third thing I want us to note here from these four verses is I want us to notice the guidance of God in the background of what's going on. This is not always immediately apparent, apparent to us. Right? But the, let's look for a moment at the subject of Philip's ministry, the Ethiopian eunuch. This guy is the treasurer of the Ethiopian queen's empire. You know, he's a reasonably lani guy. He's quite well-to-do. You know, he's the minister of finance for Ethiopia. If he was traveling today, he would have a limousine motorcade, and they'd be going to be flashing lights on the whole to-do. He has just traveled all the way from Ethiopia, which is, by the way, currently our current Sudan, not our current Ethiopia. He's traveled all the way from there to Jerusalem to worship and honor God. That's a really long way. I don't know if you're aware of that. Let me, let me, show, you, let me show you that on a map, right? That's the distance from from Ethiopia, all ancient Ethiopia to Jerusalem. That's a 3,000-kilometer journey. Google reckons it'll take you 62 hours to drive. 
Anyone ever taken 62 hours to drive to church? <laughs> See, Philip traveled 80 Ks because an angel told him to. This man has chosen to undergo a combined journey of 6,000 kilometers in order to worship a God that's not his. I did some maths. To do that in a chariot will probably take one way. It will take you between one and a half and two months. Make a one-way journey. He's done this to get to a temple where he could only go into the outer courts. And in the outer court are a collection of moneylenders and charlatans wasting the space of the Gentiles because they wanted to make money off God's people. And he's not even allowed into the temple. But he's done all of this. He's taken four months out of his year. He's traveled 6,000 kilometers to do his best to worship a God that he's heard about called Yahweh. This is a man who is genuinely desperately looking to meet with God. I don't know if I've met a man like that, but I'll tell you a story about a guy I did meet once. We used to do this thing when I was a little bit younger called a spiritual treasure hunting. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It sounds a little weird. Right? But what we'd do, a couple of us as young adults, we'd get together and we'd begin to pray and we'd ask God three things. God, show us where we need to go, tell us who we need to talk to, and tell us what they look like. We'd ask those three questions, and you would hope that God would answer. So one day we were doing this, a group of us, and, um, and the sense we got, we needed to go to Cavendish Square. And the picture of the guy I, I felt God told me I needed to speak to was a Muslim-looking guy with one of the little Muslim hats on. I don't know what they called him, sorry. Right, and uh, so if we go to Cavendish Square, and I, I mean, I need to let you know this. Like, we're doing this because we believe it's a good thing to be doing. But I'm not, like, very excited about that. I'm a little bit scared, quite a lot scared, really, because I don't like talking to people I don't know. I find it awkward and challenging. And just off we go. We go to Cavendish. And you kind of, in the back of your mind, hoping the whole time that you won't meet someone. So at least you went and were obedient, but, you know, nothing happened, and it wasn't my fault. Well, we're on the escalator. And ahead of me, I see this guy. He looks very similar to the picture of the guy. I've got a Muslim-looking guy, hat on. So I get to the top of the escalator, and I go up to him, and I'm like, listen, I'm really sorry. I know this is probably really weird, but my name is Brad. I'm from a Christian church down the road. We were praying, and, and I felt God wanted me to come and to speak to you about Jesus. Like, I'm ready to get handed off. I, I shared that with an old lady before she almost beat me with a bag. It was a real thing chat to this guy. You, you know what he says to me? He says, I'm so glad that you've come to chat to me. What you don't know is that for the last couple of days, I've been hiding out in the bathrooms at Cavendish, waiting for someone to come in singing some Christian lyrics so that I could ask them about Jesus. I'm like, what? Like, really? Are you kidding me? I'm petrified of going up to speak to a guy who's different to me from a different culture and a different background. He's been hiding in the bathrooms trying to find someone who will tell him about Jesus. God is so at work in the background of the story here with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Far more than Philip ever knew. And the angel tells him to go south and he goes south because he's obedient. But God has been doing so much that precedes that moment. This Ethiopian's been on a 3,000 kilometer journey in order to worship God. And yet it's not at the temple that he meets God. 
he gets there, he has this time of worship, and he leaves, and he thinks it's done. And it's on the road on the way home where God brings the gospel to him. God is so at work in the background of our story in ways we don't even know. And he's at work in the backgrounds of the stories of the people around us. You never know what God might be preparing for you or how he might be desiring to use you in someone else's story. Okay, let's get to the next section of the text. We'll do it a little bit quicker because we're running out of time. All right. Verse 30. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. We'll get there in a moment. Let's just notice a couple of things around this little moment. I want you to notice how Philip takes initiative. Remember what the Spirit said to him? The Spirit said to Philip, go up to the chariot and stay near it. So Philip goes up to the chariot after his three-day walk. And he, he could have just been like, I'm going to walk next to the chariot. I've done what God has asked me to do. Because that's what the Spirit said. But instead he recognizes God has opened a door here for ministry. Remember what Howard was sharing two weeks ago? How God opens doors. And so he recognizes what's going on. And he joins in. There's a, there's a partnership that he has with the Lord in this moment. And God anticipates that he would exercise initiative. He anticipates that. He could have said to him, listen, Philip, go up to the chariot. There's a guy there. He's reading from the Old Testament. And I want you to tell him about me. That would have been more helpfully specific. But God doesn't say that to Philip. He just says, go there. And he expects that when he does that, there will be an initiative that he will take. Simple thing that that we need to just grab from that is let's not over-spiritualize evangelism to the point where we believe God is going to do everything and we don't have to do anything. We get to be involved in the process. God has done so much already behind this encounter and he just sets Philip up on the plate and allows him to, to do what needs to be done. All right. Secondly, let's notice the response of the eunuch in this because I think this is really helpful. Philip asks him a question, and he responds, and he's, he says, please come and sit with me in my chariot. That's like the limousine coming to a stop, the motorcade stopping, the door opening, and saying, come and sit inside my limo, right? This is a big, lonely guy meeting a guy on the side of the road. And it's just, it's helpful for me because one of the things that I think is unhelpful in Christian evangelism is when we play bait and switch with people, when we try and, and butter them up in one way so that we can drop the gospel bomb on them over here which is not what Philip tries to do. And I don't think it's what Jesus tries to do either. Jesus would, would understand where people were at and he would speak life into that situation and then he would allow them to pick it up or to let it go. Remember when Jesus would say, let him who has ears, let him hear. I won't spend more on that. Now, but I want you to notice his response. He invites him to come and sit with him because he knows that what Philip is offering is something that he genuinely wants. He really wants to know about God. And generally speaking, this has been my observation, that evangelism is going to be successful when you find an openness on the part of the person who's going to receive it. Very few people are argued into the kingdom. C.S. Lewis may have been one of them. Right, it does happen. That there is a place for that. But generally speaking, it's where the Spirit has gone out ahead of us and convicted the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, where He's touched the heart of someone and begun to open that door. Those are the people who are going to respond in evangelism because God is already at work. And I don't want you to give up praying for people. 
But I think we need to look for a willingness to hear when we engage in evangelism. All right. Let's carry on reading verse 32. It says, He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? Just to highlight how wonderful God is, not only is the eunuch reading from the Old Testament, he could have been reading from anywhere, but in fact he's reading from a passage in Isaiah, which is one of what we call servant songs. There are three of them in Isaiah. They are prophetic passages that speak about the servant of the Lord that is best understood as the prophetic description of Jesus. And so he's reading a prophecy about the Messiah that is to come. And Philip gets to explain to him, you know what? This Messiah that you're reading about, the servant you're reading about, this is Jesus. Here's who he is. I think it's beautiful. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who's the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And so Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Just one thing to, to mention briefly on this. This is a wonderful opportunity. It's great to see how God is at work there. But I want us to just recognize none of the time that we spend in the scriptures is ever wasted. You might not always see how it's going to be used, but it's always important. It's incredibly valuable. And I, I wonder, genuinely, like maybe something for us to consider, if God gave you the same opportunity and you came across someone who was reading through the Old Testament Scriptures, would you be able to help them find Jesus there? I think it'd be, it's helpful for us to make sure that we always are growing in our love for God and for His Word. And that the sword of the Spirit, the word of truth that God has given us, is sharp and ready. Because you never know what's going to happen. Right, let's finish the story. Verses 36 to 39. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is some water. What stands in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. And Philip baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Can we we'll leave talking about teleportation for another time? Just as we close, this last little section, I think, says some helpful things about baptism. So I just want to highlight very quickly. I want you to, it, what it does for me in a nutshell is it strips baptism of all the trappings that we as the church have genuinely associated to it. I want you to notice there's no family present at this baptism. There's no ceremony, there's no baptismal font, there's no pastor to do it. There's just Philip, the eunuch, and some guys that might have been traveling with him. And they do his baptism in a puddle. I think, unfortunately, in the church, we've sometimes turned baptism into a rite of passage rather than a response to salvation. See, Philip does the baptism because anyone who loves and follows Jesus can baptize someone else who's decided to love and follow Jesus. That's the qualification. Philip does it in a puddle because it actually doesn't matter where you do it. In Musenberg, we do it in the ocean. All right, we got, I got to baptize Glenda in a lake in the Cedarberg because that's where we discovered that it needs to happen. You can baptize someone anywhere, and it, and it happens immediately after this guy decides to follow Jesus. That's, that's where baptism belongs. I think we need to uncomplicate it a little bit and bring it back and put it in its rightful place. All right, that's enough for me. That's enough about baptism. And uh, it's, an, 
Yeah, we trust that God's word has been helpful and good to us as we've been reading it this morning in building in us and growing in us a heart for evangelism. You know, Paul writes to the Romans, Al pointed this out to us um, a couple of, a month or two ago in our council meeting. He pointed out how, how desperately Paul loved people that were outside the kingdom. And he said, you know, if it was possible for me to trade my salvation so that all of my people would be saved, I would do it. That's the depth of the heart that he had for those who are outside the kingdom. And my heart this morning is, that, is just that God would put that heart into us. And we would be burdened and we would grow in our love for those who have not yet found the love of the Father. Let's pray together. Jesus, we want to thank you that you haven't left us as orphans. That you are Emmanuel, God with us. That you speak to us, that you lead us and direct us and guide us. Thank you, God, that you go ahead of us and that you're at work in the background of everyone's story. You're at work in the background of our story and you're at work in the background of the people that we might encounter. God, thank you that you use us and desire to bring life and speak life into the hearts of people through us. We bless you for that, God, and we want to be a part of your redemptive mission in this world. Lord, we want to be a part of seeing people that have not yet found you come to find the greatest God, the Lord of all creation, the the Father that loves them beyond compare. Lord Jesus, we want to be a part of that, and so God, I pray that you would continue to build in us a love for those who have yet to find you, a deep and burning desire. To, to find them and to, to be a part of their journey, to, to be their light in the darkness, to guide them and to lead them to Jesus and to be ready, God, when you speak, to be used by you to take initiative and to follow you. We want to do that, God, so that your kingdom would grow and so that lost sons and daughters would come home. We ask this in your wonderful name, King Jesus. Amen.